0: Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Whoa, what? That is like super offensive. In fact, these sentences that we find in the New Testament, along with a few others, have been debated and argued over and really has caused churches to split and even has been used as ammunition in recent culture wars. Is there a better way forward than just fighting with each other and dismissing each other? I think there is. With some good tools and a bit of study, I think we can discover some actually pretty amazing truths. So let's talk about it together. Many people have rejected the apostle Paul, Uh, the biblical writings, and even all of Christianity because of the apparent sexism and and chauvinism in these verses that we just read. And honestly, I don't blame them because many people have used these exact verses to justify their own sexism and chauvinism. And what's more with these verses, Christians often judge each other based on their interpretation of these verses. Either they judge them as ignorant, backward, sexist woman haters, or as heretical, false teachers who are You have given in to the worldly culture and only want to tickle the ears of modern listeners. In fact, there's a real good chance that some of you watching this and listening to this will decide whether or not to ever listen to me again based on what I say in the next 20 minutes or so. You'll decide whether I'm a true Christian depending on how I talk about these few verses. See, nothing divides Christians better than misused and misunderstood Bible verses. We could actually do a few episodes on this issue of women in the church, and we probably need to someday. But for now, how can we read this passage and understand what's going on? First, let's take a breath. See, if this is a big deal for you on either side, wherever you land, I get it. It is important. But maybe with the right tools and a lot of grace for each other, We might not settle the issue for all of Christianity for all of time, but we can look at this passage and try to understand each other and maybe give ourselves permission to look at things from a different angle and really dig into the world and the meaning behind the biblical writings. See, Jesus can use the biblical writings to change our hearts if and when we are willing to change our minds. So what is Paul saying here? Now due to time restraints, we're not going to be able to go into all of what it it could say, but we can still get a good overview of what we're dealing with here. And so we're going to use our rhythm that we've been using throughout this series. And so the first thing we do when we take a text that might be misunderstood is we discover its genre and its historical context. And so if we get a good Bible dictionary, we'll find out that the book of 1 Timothy is what we call a pastoral epistle. Basically, it was written by the Apostle Paul, though that is kind of debated, to his protege, Timothy, a little before 60 AD. And Paul is instructing Timothy how to lead the church in Ephesus. And so where are we in our six-part play that we've talked about throughout this series? We're in part five. The church. That Jesus' death and resurrection has brought something new. A new kingdom that operates completely different from the kingdoms before. And so this epistle is explaining what it's like to live in that kingdom, specifically to Timothy, a pastor. And So the first thing we see right off the bat in just that little bit is that Paul is writing to a church leader about church things. So whatever Paul is saying here has nothing to do with our communities at large. So this is not God saying he's against women being the president or women bosses or women having any authority or leadership or anything like that. You would think I wouldn't need to say that, but sadly, I do. And in our Bible dictionary, we can learn that about Ephesus. That's the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor in the southwest corner of modern Turkey. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And a lot of income had, would, would come into Ephesus through trade and, and tourism to the Temple of Artemis. And a lot of artisans were there that could really improve their social class by being successful and accumulating wealth. And when we talk about Ephesus, we'd be remiss not to talk about Artemis, which I talked about her temple. Artemis' worship was huge. See, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Artemis was seen as the daughter of Zeus, the twin of Apollo, but the older one, the one who came first, right? And she was seen in Ephesus as the mother goddess the source of life that nourished all creatures. She she was the goddess of fertility. She could either save or kill women during childbirth. And her whole religion, her whole cult was led by women. And so we see, again, in our dictionary that in Acts 19, it points us to Acts 19, where we first hear about Ephesus in the biblical writings, where Paul goes there, And he stays there for over two years, teaching and and preaching. And he actually gets famous there because people are getting healed. And all these people from Ephesus get all their magic books and all their magic items. And they burn it in this huge bonfire worth millions of dollars. And this one uh, silversmith named Demetrius, he built shrines to Artemis. He wasn't too keen on losing all his money because people were turning from Artemis worship to Jesus worship. And he also wasn't too keen on Artemis losing all this prestige. And so he starts a riot, and the people of Ephesus start rioting, and they're shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they chant that for like two hours. And so why is all of that detail, why is that important when we look at a passage like this? Because a biblical passage can only make sense now if we understand how it made sense then. So now to understand these few verses a little better, a little further, we need to take our next step. We need to read the context of the whole Text and with epistles as we've talked about, they're letters, and so how do you read a letter when somebody sends it to you or an email? You don't just like pick a random verse in the middle and be like, "Oh, I totally know what I was talking about." No, you you read the letter, you read the whole thing and get the context. With these, they're pretty short. You can do that. You read the whole thing, and if we do that, we find that the main point of this letter of First Timothy is that there's false teachers going on in Ephesus, and they're thinking that they're they're great teachers of the law of Moses, but they actually don't really know what they're talking about. And they, they say that it's wrong to be married for some reason and it's wrong to eat certain foods. And there's been a lot of arguing and debating over genealogies and, and myths and meaningless speculations, Paul calls, it, calls them. And all these things have caused a disruption in the unity of the church in Ephesus. And it's even disrupting their church gatherings. So Paul's concern is, is the unity of the church and the witness of the church in Ephesus. So Paul says, knock it off. Like, knock off all this arguing and and this debating about certain ideas of theology. Does that sound familiar? He says, here's what Jesus followers should be like. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth says, live quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. That's what Jesus followers, he says, should be known for. He kind of goes more in depth. He says, this is how you men who are arguing, here's how you can live those quiet, dignified lives. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. In other words, he's saying, guys, Stop bickering with one another. Like, seriously, get your attitude towards others and and towards God straightened out. Learn actually how to love God by loving your brothers and sisters. And then Paul explains how the Ephesian women can promote unity. And the next few verses are the ones that we've read that have caused people for centuries to do the exact thing Paul just said not to do, argue and bicker. And so now we do our step of engaging the actual text we're looking at. And we need to ask a lot of questions. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Modest. So he wants women to be modest. So like no two-piece bathing suits, right? Right. Well, that depends on how much it costs and why they are wearing those. See, if we use our our tools and we look up the word modest, and we'll use Blue Letter Bible because it's a free way to look things up, blueletterbible.com, we look up the word modest and the definition we get for that Greek word is honorable or, or self-controlled. And so what it might be saying there, what he might be saying is, you know, don't use the way you dress, your fancy clothes and your jewelry to draw attention to yourselves, to, to show how wealthy and important you are compared to others. He says people who are devoted to God shouldn't be known by what they wear, but by the good lives they live. And then he goes on. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly now we already read that i know and it's offensive but first let's focus on the positive part first see in a world and a culture where women didn't have equal status with men where a where female literacy was actually the exception paul is expecting jesus falling women to be learning about jesus equally with the men that's that's huge for the time and culture that's that's a big deal but even though they should be learning, Paul says, they, they should learn submissively and quietly. And we're like, okay, well, let's, let's not just give up yet. Like, why? Why should they learn submissively and quietly? What reason does Paul give? For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. okay. Well, this seems to be actually getting a little weird. Like, if taken at face value, Paul's saying women should be quiet in church because Adam was made first and because Eve ate the fruit first and brought in sin, and somehow that affects gender roles now. By the way, this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to really fully understand. And so some have actually taken this to mean that all men are superior to women because man was made first, and that all women are goable or easily deceived because, well, Eve was deceived first, and she's, you know, like every woman. That can't be right, right? Can it? No. Like, what the heck is going on here? Like, I'm personally really not liking this passage so far, and so maybe let's let's keep reading. Maybe Paul clears things up as he, as he keeps going, right? But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness... And modesty. Huh? Like, so women should be quiet and submissive and they'll be saved. I'm guessing like go to heaven if they have babies and continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. So does that mean a good question? If a woman can't have babies, she can't go to heaven? Like seriously, what is even happening right now? And now this is why we don't just stop here. We don't just like, I don't know. When when it comes to passages that confuse, bother, and offend us, we need to pause and see if we're actually understanding what's going on here. Because when passages don't seem to make sense, we have two options. We can either give up or we can dig deeper. In fact, debated passages can force Jesus followers to either dig further into their entrenched opinions or dig deeper to a fuller understanding. And so let's dig deeper. And so let's ask the experts, because this needs some expert opinions. And we can ask, and while we do, let's see if they can answer some of our questions that we have. And now with a debated passage like this, like a difficult, one of the most difficult passages of the New Testament, I usually consult a few experts. And so I did, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to paraphrase a few of them. And so first, let's look at that modest thing. Like, are we on the right track with the modest thing? And we are. In fact, most experts agree that some women in Ephesus were disrupting the actual church gathering by flaunting their wealth, by wearing expensive clothes to show that they're better than the poorer women in the church. And Paul says that's not how things work in the Jesus community. Your wealth means nothing. What matters is how wealthy you are in your good deeds. In fact, he reiterates that later in the letter in chapter 6 verse 18. Tell them, talking about rich people, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And so that's kind of this idea that the wealthy were kind of flaunting it in front of the poor. And Paul's saying, no, be rich in good deeds. So we're on the right track there. But what about like this women having no authority, women not teaching, they need to be like quiet and, and submissive stuff. Well, a good commentary will point out that there are actually two main views on this passage, which means Jesus-loving, Jesus-following scholars who take the biblical writings seriously have different views on this. And so for us, just regular people, it's important to take it easy here, which means both views come from people who are trying to clearly understand and stay true to scripture. See, unity means being able to disagree and still love like a healthy family. And so the first position, the first uh, main position on this passage is they kind of take it as the, the clear black and white, plain meaning, the one you kind of just get as you read it. This is the actually the tradition I was trained in where Paul is prohibiting women from teaching. He is, and he's prohibiting women from holding authority over men in every church for all time and all places. And that the problem here in Ephesus was that women were flaunting their new freedom in Jesus. And they were destroying the unity of the church by trying to take a role that was reserved for men. Meaning that women aren't lesser than men. There's just different roles for men and women. And that the women's role in the church gathering is to be quiet a, a quiet and submissive learner not because they're less than men just because it's a different role they're not supposed to teach or or question during the gathering that women should be fully submissive to the male authority within the church and this position holds that paul uses the adam and eve account to show that this is binding for all churches because it goes to the very nature of god's intention for roles of men and women that and eve the idea of eve being deceived is not that women are gullible but it's a warning of what happens when women reject God's natural hierarchy and try to assume authority over men. And the part about childbirth, these experts would say is either saying that the the proper role for Jesus following women is to embrace their their role as the caretaker of the home, or maybe what it's actually saying when it says she will be saved through childbirth it's talking about Eve and that she'll be saved through the birth of the child, meaning Jesus, the, the Christ child. So that's the, the first kind of traditional position, I guess, but the, the, there's a second position and saying that this passage is actually situational to the specific situation happening in Ephesus in the first century. They say that there is a group of women within the culture of this female led pagan religion that was influenced by those false teachers, Paul is talking about. And they were teaching heresy in the church and trying to usurp the authority of, of male leaders who were already in place as leaders of the church. And Paul's telling them, stop. Like, knock it off. You, he's, he's calling them to the mutual submission and, and the unity he called this church to that we see in the letter he wrote to the church, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for. Christ. And so the experts say this is this thing in First Timothy is a local, temporary rule instead of a universal rule for every church and every time. And in his commentary, Philip H. Towner, he says something very important about this passage. We run the risk of misusing, and that's an important word for us in this series, we run the risk of misusing chapter two, verses eight through fifteen, if we make it a proof text in our modern debate. Meaning if we use these verses to prove our point. So meaning this one passage will not and cannot and should not answer the question of what a woman's role is in the church, what it should be or what it is. See, a passage's whole meaning needs to make sense within the whole story of the biblical writings. And so experts who agree with position two Take us to other passages that talk about the role of women in the Jesus community. For instance, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul talks about orderly worship in the gatherings and that they, they shouldn't be the church gathering shouldn't be a crazy free-for-all. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Now, position one experts, again, would say, well, that's pretty clear cut. Like, Paul is consistently giving two churches the same orders. And, uh, yeah, first glance, it makes sense. But position two experts would say, you know, not so fast. Because in 1 Corinthians, if you go back and read it in its context, in chapter 11, Paul actually talks about women praying out loud in the gatherings. So, obviously, he doesn't mean they should be silent in the gatherings. And he even talks about women prophesying in these church gatherings, like actually speaking to the congregation on behalf of God, which sounds kind of like teaching. So these verses can't mean what they seem to mean at face value because women are speaking in the church service. And so they explain that there must be something else going on at this specific church in Corinth, just like there's something going on in the specific church at Ephesus. And these experts explain that the Corinthian women were disrupting gatherings by questioning their husbands during the teaching and even questioning prophecy that their specific husbands were teaching during the church gatherings, And so the example would be kind of like if, you know, I go to our our gatherings and I say, you know what? Jesus wants husbands to give themselves up for their wives, just as he gave himself up for all of us. And Liz stands up and is like, oh, really, John? So where was this teaching when I was needing help with the kids yesterday? And that's kind of what experts are saying is going on in Corinth, the the people would prophesy and the wives would be like, now what does that mean? Like, that's, you're so full of it, right? I mean, think about how chaotic and disruptive that would be for with so many people talking and questioning and clarifying and teaching all at the same time. It'd be like a Jerry Springer episode where nobody can hear what anyone else is saying. And so the second position, experts, argue that these passages, 1st Timothy and 1st Corinthians, really need to be seen within the context of the overall story of God that is presented in the biblical writings. That the new Jesus-following communities are completely revolutionary in in the honor and the dignity and, and the roles they gave women. And they give a few examples, such as all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In all four of those, the authors make a specific point to say that it was women who were entrusted to be the first to preach the good news after Jesus was resurrected. And also in passages in the New Testament where it talks about spiritual gifts that God gives to people, including teaching, it implies there's no like gender role there. It implies that God gives those gifts, including teaching, to both men and women. And then they point out in First Peter that Paul, Peter says we all Jesus followers are now holy priests, right? We call that the priesthood of all believers. He's not saying that all men are priests or that all, it's not the priesthood of all husbands over their wives. He's saying all Jesus followers are now holy priests representing God to the world. And then they'll take us to Galatians three twenty-eight. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And experts would say, well, can a uh, can a Gentile now be a leader of a Christian community? And they'd be like, well, yeah. Well, can a slave, if somebody's a slave, can they be a leader? And they'd say, well, yeah. And then they say, well, can, then can a female be a leader? And kind of pause. And you're like, well, that, see, they point out that the revolutionary nature of this Jesus community. And then they might point out Romans 16, where Paul commends Phoebe, a woman, as a leader in the church. In fact, Phoebe was the one who took the letter of Romans to the Romans, which means traditionally she's the one who read it and then taught it to the people in Rome and would answer any questions that people would have about this huge theological letter that Paul wrote. It's kind of a big deal. And then in Romans 16, Paul then greets a bunch of church leaders, including many women like Priscilla who's named before her husband, which in ancient writings meant she's actually given higher honor and importance than her husband. And then he he talks about Junia, which is a proven female name during those times, and called her an actual apostle. Some experts also look at the historical context of Ephesus. In fact, one interesting idea says that in this passage, Paul is guiding Timothy on how this new Jesus-following community differs from the pagan culture around them in Ephesus and how to keep that culture from seeping into the new Jesus movement. In fact, I first, I first read this idea in an article describing a book by Gary Hoag, who studied the worship of Artemis in Ephesus around 50 AD, around the time that Paul was writing to Timothy. And as we said at the beginning, this, this cult of, F, of Artemis, it was female-led. And so women would show their devotion to Artemis through extravagant clothes, extravagant hairstyles. They would flaunt their wealth and their commitment to Artemis by trying to look like the goddess Artemis. And so in this, in this idea, Paul is saying, you might be used to flaunting all of this in your past religion, but following Jesus is different. You don't show devotion and religiosity through what you wear. Like, think about wearing your Sunday best. It kind of still happens. He's saying, but you don't do that through your clothing. You do that through, you show your love of Jesus through what you do. Also, Artemis worshipers were to be women who were assertive and and competitive and, and vocal. They are supposed to serve piously and, and compete fiercely. They were supposed to argue for the glory of Artemis. And so Paul says, Jesus followers don't argue. We're quiet were submissive to each other, as Jesus modeled by by serving and even washing his disciples' feet. Well, the Ephesians also believed that Artemis created humanity, and therefore Artemis and her female worshipers were superior to men. they also believed that evil was brought to the world by men. And so that's why in this account, this idea, that's why Paul brings in the Adam and Eve account that women were not, they're not made first, they're not superior, both Adam and Eve brought in evil. And then kind of like the kicker is Artemis was the goddess of fertility, of childbearing, and there was a lot of pressure on Ephesian women to be loyal to Artemis because the consequences of offending her was dying during childbirth. And so this passage, instead of this confusing idea about having babies, saving women, and that type of thing, Paul is actually giving hope and confidence to these new Jesus following women that they don't have to fear angering Artemis because now they belong to Jesus and Jesus will protect them through their delivery. Isn't that fascinating? Do you see how understanding the original context really helps passages make sense in our context? And so how do all these thoughts and and this research and and this digging, how does it help us in our first Timothy passage? How do we understand all this? At the very least, it shows there might be more going on than we might first assume. And that we need to be careful not to make sweeping theological claims upon all of Christianity because of a few sentences written to pioneering Jesus followers in ancient Ephesus. When it comes to difficult passages, we need to take Paul's command seriously. All Jesus followers should learn quietly and submissively. See, none of us have the entire picture perfectly clear. And so let's take our last step in our rhythm. Let's do something with it. So as we learn more and more about our place in God's story and our role to play. Now, I think we need to keep in mind what Paul wrote to the Romans. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Let's keep that in mind that maybe we don't know it all. And so let's read that. I mean, it wouldn't be harmful to read that every day this week. It's pretty short. Let's read Romans 12, 16, every day this week. And then ask, what is more important to Jesus? For us to be right or for us to be united in love? And Then ask, what's more important to me? And once you can answer those questions, I'd say, pray this, pray, Jesus, help me live in harmony with others and use what I learn to love others. See within this revolutionary community of Jesus followers, there is room for differences. If we are first united in love, then we can explore the biblical writings together. We can learn from each other. We can listen to each other. We can give grace to each other. And if we do that, we will discover more and more of who Jesus is and what our role is in his kingdom. So yes, do your research, do it with an open mind, do it with an open heart, and then trust God to guide you to the truth. Not with a goal of more knowledge, but with a goal to discover who God truly is and what love looks like in our life now. When the church's goal is loving unity in Jesus, Theological differences lose their power to divide. This content is put out by Cross Creek Community Church. We are a church in Salem for Salem, and we are online and also we gather in person. So check out our website for more information or the show notes. Uh, but we have some events coming up. They'll be on the screen here for you. Uh, We have another gathering in July, and then two more in August. And on the third Sunday in August, we're gonna be handing out ice cream for everyone. It's our August for Salem opportunity. There's gonna be more details coming, but we're gonna be at West Bennett Park in the afternoon on the third Sunday in August, handing out free ice cream. So it should be a fun event for everybody. Uh, Good weather, splash pad, basketball court, uh, there's a play structure there for the kids, lots of green space to run around, but mostly just fun to be together and do something fun for the community. So we hope to see you in July and August, and we hope you're enjoying yourself, applying sunscreen liberally, and finding time to relax. And we'll see you soon.